Parker, thank you for that gift and reminder today. We're going to read together from God's Word in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You'll, you'll find the text uh, in your notes, but we'll also be looking at another place in the New Testament. So if you have your Bibles, uh, make sure that you have them open and ready or turn them on if you have it on your phone. Remain seated, though, and I'd like us to read together from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The text will be on the screen. If I speak human or angelic languages, but do not have love, I am a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I donate all my goods to feed the poor, and if I give my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. This is the Word of God. Social scientists have uh, long noticed, and comedians have uh, also followed suit, uh, a pattern in human relationships that, uh, that men and women tend to uh, count uh, acts of appreciation or love differently in relationships. Uh, for example, if a, a husband uh, gets home on time from work, his wife will, in appreciation, give him one point. It's a, uh, it's a good day. He showed up on time from work. Uh, if he also has managed to, uh, to, to, to express his love and affection by hiding little chocolates for her to find so that she would uh, know that he was thinking about her. Uh, when she finds the chocolate, she lights up and she, she gives him a point. Uh, this is a, a good day. And, and then if the unthinkable happens and that night um, he walks into the kitchen and actually notices the dirty dishes, uh, that's, that's a deal for itself right there, but then goes on to do something about it, to maybe clean the dishes and put them in the dishwasher. Well, uh, well his wife, now she's going to give him double bonus points for that. He's going to get two points for, uh, for that right there. That's a, that's a big deal. Well, the husband, on the other hand, in the same course of events, has been counting things very differently. When he shows up on time after work, comes home, he realizes, hey, he has made some, some big progress today. He drove on past Lowe's and Home Depot. Uh, he has uh, made a substantial sacrifice to just come straight home. And so he gives himself 100 points. I mean, that's a, that's a big deal, 100 points. He's pretty proud of himself for thinking about his wife and, and then being creative enough and remembering to go buy the chocolates and hiding them in places for her. And so, I mean, he's thinking, I, I just must be a, a pretty special husband. I mean, other guys would, should learn from me. And so he gives himself at least 1,000 points, uh, maybe 1,000 for each chocolate that he's hidden. Regardless if she finds them or not, he's still giving himself points uh, for, uh, for doing this great act. And, I mean, let's be honest, when he notices the dishes and decides to actually clean them instead of just walking away or reminding his wife, hey, the dishes are still dirty, he, he realizes, oh, I can do this. Uh, this is not hard. I can clean the dishes and put them away for her. And, and this must be a pretty, uh, a pretty big deal because she seems to get excited when I uh, do the dishes for her. Well, he then steps back and looks at this clean kitchen, at least perfect in his mind, and says... A million points. I mean, I'm just, um, I'm just a great husband, and really, there should be books written about, uh, about me. And then his wife walks in, and he's feeling pretty big about his million and a half points that he has accumulated over the day, and she looks at him, and she gives him a sweet little kiss and a pat and says, you had a, a five-point day today. I'm so proud of you. 
And you can imagine the friction that begins to emerge in a human relationship when people count differently. Well, I, I kind of point that to you to say, uh, when we look at 1 Corinthians, we're not seeing a, a husband and wife necessarily counting differently, but we are seeing a church that's counting differently. Now, we've been walking through the, the tensions that this church had, and as we come to 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul is going to say, hey, look, y'all have been counting what matters for greatness all wrong. You've, you've just had this all mixed up. Some of them had been saying, hey, I've, I've got this great personal experience of God that is as if I'm in His very presence and, and communing with Him like the angels. And because of that, I get a million points. I mean, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. Others in the room were saying, look, I mean, week after week, I am uh, getting up and I am sharing. This is what God's Word says, and I am uh, contending with those who are, uh, who are going off into false teaching and doctrine. I mean, I am, I'm helping to hold this church to its foundation. I, I, I get a million points. <clears throat> and others were saying, no, I'm, I'm doing what Jesus said to do. I am loving the least of these, and I am caring for the poor and those in prison. And, and so I get a million points. And these people have been arguing back and forth about who really was the spiritual ones in their church, counting all the wrong things. And Paul says at the end of chapter 12, after helping them navigate through all of these crises and fighting, and he says, look, I'm going to show you an even better way. I'm going to show you a whole different way to count what matters. I'm going to show you what God counts. And how about we use his accounting when we consider how we stand before him and how we stand with one another? And so he opens up into chapter 13 what, what some have described as, as the pinnacle of Paul's theology. And others have said this is one of the most profound and beautiful poems that we see in the New Testament. And many folks will choose this text as they will come together in marriage because of the depth and the richness of the imagery here. As Paul says, what really counts is love. In verse 1, he says love counts more than those great personal experiences. You, you read it already. If I speak human or angelic languages but do not have love, I'm a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So he's, he's addressing those folks who had great personal private experiences of God's, uh, God's majesty and glory, and they were emotionally just, just enraptured in this experience. But Paul says, look, if that's what you're counting, then you're, not, you're, just, you're just missing the point of this thing. You, you're like a, a noisy gong. It, it may have been that the gong he was referring to was basically the amplification system in an ancient amphitheater. They didn't have microphones like this, and so one of the things that they would do is in the back of the room, they would put up brass sheets of metal so that the speaker, when he projected his voice, it would bounce off that brass metal and everybody could hear better. That might have been the, uh, the, the gong that he's referring to. The symbol is likely, well, what we have with, with the drum. You strike it, and it makes a nice big sound all at once. Well, what Paul says is, look, if, if all you have is this personal experience where you've got a great, uh, great relationship with God all by yourself, 
but you don't have love, then the words that are coming out of your mouth and these prayers and these expressions of worship, they're as hollow as an echo bouncing around a room. They're as useless as a random crash of a cymbal with no context. It's, it's like this. When a, when a toddler is beginning to speak, you've probably seen this. If you've got a, an 18-month-old, they're beginning to speak by, by just throwing out all kinds of different uh, sounds. They'll, uh, they'll mutter and babble and say all kinds of different things, and it's really fun to be around them. But uh, sometimes they will eventually uh, say something that sounds like English. Now, it's not because, well, it's just babbles, right? But it'll sound like something that could be English. And what do the adults around them do? Well, the, the mom and dad say, yay, she could talk. It's her first word. And the little baby is at first going, I'm sorry, I don't know what I did. And then realizing, no, wait, this is good. And so the baby tries to repeat the sound. This is how a, a baby learns to speak. It is in the context of that relationship. The sound comes out from the child's mouth, and then she recognizes, oh, mom and dad lit up when I made that sound. I should do that again. You see, uh, communication and relationship uh, requires the, both parties responding one to the other. It requires two people in the relationship. And so when, what Paul says is, look, if all you have is one person in this great spiritual experience then you might as well have just been shouting out into the wind. Because the whole point of this, this new relationship with God is not that you might be enraptured in great emotional experiences that are all about you. The point of a relationship with God is that you would actually encounter Him and that you would find yourself shaped by this encounter by his truth and his story. And, and so what really matters when it comes to, to coming together in corporate worship or even in your own private time of, of devotion and seeking God, what really matters is not that your soul is, is thrilled and all stirred up. What really matters is that you are confronted with the reality of the living God. And the way that we experience the living God is through his self-revelation, his speaking. And what has he spoken? Well, he has said, I am the creator and rightful ruler of this whole world. And you humans are willful rebels. You've rejected me and my rule. And it's brought ruin and destruction. But in my mercy, I've opened up a way, made, made an opportunity for you to be restored to me through my son, Jesus Christ. And for all who come through him in faith, they'll find not just restored relationship with me, but they're going to see that the end of this story is that I restore all that's gone wrong. And I'm going to fix all that's broken. And so you have great hope. Every time you and I come to seek God, whether corporately 
personally. We ought to be engaging him on his terms, the story that he has told about himself, rightly recognizing him as creator and ruler and acknowledging our own sinfulness and brokenness, which should drive us to his son Jesus, our Savior, and should birth in us a new hope and a new life and joy and peace. And that comes in a relationship with God that then spills over into relationship with other people who are experiencing God in the same kind of a way. And so for our personal religious experience to be more than just noise that's bouncing around, it must be rooted in a relationship of love, a love stirred up towards the Father for his mercy towards us and a love that spills out in love towards his people and the world which he is redeeming. If that's not happening, then no matter how enrapturously your personal experience is, it's, well, noise. Because what God counts is love. Paul then tackles the next subject, that of those who have puffed themselves up around knowledge. He'd already warned them of this. If you've been reading in 1 Corinthians, and in chapter 8, verse 1, he's already said, uh, be careful because knowledge puffs up, but, but, uh, but love is that which is supposed to bring about humility. And so he points to the, the person who has uh, great gifts of prophecy and knowledge and understanding mystery, even has faith that others would look up to and say, well, that's the, the, the most profound example of faith that I've ever seen. He, he points to the example that Jesus gave. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you'll be able to move the mountains. And Paul points right back to that. And he says, if you find that guy, but that guy doesn't have love, then he is nothing. And all of you others who would try to advance yourself uh, uh, over one another, thinking, oh, I'm more spiritual or I'm, I'm more effective for the kingdom of God. If you advance yourself but don't have love, then you are nothing. And it's a pretty profound and, well, dangerous kind of condemnation. It's, it's like if you were to open your door in the season around here where the locusts are moving, and you, you see that little critter right on your door. It looks like an alien from another planet just staring right at you, and you, uh, you, you freak out and you jump back. Okay, maybe you don't. Uh, I'm not saying that I do, but some people might uh, be a little startled if they happen to see the little, uh, little locust hanging on their door. And then realizing, oh, well, it's just a shell, right? Because they molt and they leave it behind. And you, you grab the little shell, and just with a little pinch of your fingers, you crush it into nothing. It's, it's dust. Well, that's what Paul is saying here is, look, you can have all of these demonstrations of faith and of a great understanding of God's Word and no great theology. You can have all of that. But if you don't have love, then you have misunderstood the purpose of all your knowledge and ultimately, you're like a little locust shell. You're just crushed up into nothing. It's empty. Because what God counts 
is not the person who's advanced and recognized by everybody else as uh, the, the celebrity Christian. What God counts is the heart that understands the purpose of knowledge, the purpose of God's gift, which is to build up others in love. And then he points to the last one here. He says, if I donate all my goods to feed the poor, if I give my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, your translation might say, if I give my body in order that I might be burned up. And there's a, a reason for that difference of translation that if you want to know more about, come find me after the service or come to the Sunday seminar tonight, and we'll, uh, we'll talk about it because we don't have time this morning. But the point is the same regardless of that translation, that, that you can, there is a way to, to serve and to give and to, uh, to care for others and really only be caring for yourself. It's possible to, uh, to, to serve the poor and to uh, teach Sunday school and to, uh, to, to give your life away on others, move to another continent to, uh, to, to be a missionary. But really, all of that is about love for yourself and not about love for God or love for others. If those acts of self are self-glorifying, if those acts of service are intended to build you up, then you have missed the motivation of love. As one pastor would put it, as he translated this verse, he would say it this way, no matter what I say, what I believe, or what I do, I'm bankrupt if I do not love. So how do we know? I mean, if all of these sort of external realities aren't indicators of a heart of love, how might we know? Don't worry about evaluating other people in the room. How do you know about your own heart, that your own heart is actually motivated out of love, that is seeking the purpose of love, that understands the, the depth of love? How do you test your own heart? Well, I think for that, we can easily turn to the life of Jesus Christ. Because who else other than Jesus would have such a, a, a rapturously close relationship with God the Father? He was his son. And who else besides Jesus would have a faith that, that could move mountains? His collapsed an empire. And who else would give more than Jesus? He gave his own life, his own body on the cross to serve those who were poor, not merely financially, but spiritually. Who else would have those great demonstrations and yet at, its, at his heart have love? Well, if you look at the last few moments and hours of Jesus' life, we see his heart put on display in the midst of some intense circumstances. And it can help us to examine our own hearts if you look at Luke chapter 22, verse 42, we, we're seeing Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, knowing he's about to be betrayed and, and wrongfully tried and beaten and ultimately executed on the cross. He knows that's coming. In the Garden, he prays this, 
Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. The cup meaning his suffering. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Do you want to know what real love looked like in the heart of Jesus? When faced with a decision between doing what he wanted and choosing what God wanted, he gave up his own will and said, Father, not mine, but yours. Let's do it that way. And if you want to test whether or not love is really at work in your heart, then that's the place to look. Does your heart in those places where you see a conflict, knowing this is what God wants, but I don't want that. I want to stay where I'm at. Are you able to say like Jesus, not my will, but yours be done? Because when your heart begins to do that, you can, you can know that your heart has learned to love God more than yourself. And that's what Jesus said was the greatest commandment, right? To love the Lord our God with all of our heart and mind and strength. When you choose his will over yours, you've got a good indication that you're loving like Jesus did, loving God first. But flip over to the next chapter and you see another little sign of a heart that's learning to love. Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus prays again. Now he is hanging on the cross, being executed alongside of criminals. And here he prays for those who had just betrayed and executed him. He says this, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Do you want to know if your heart is really loving others? Then forgive those whom have hurt you and harmed you and treated you unjustly and stolen from you. If you want to know if your heart is loving others, then love others over yourself at the point at which it is most difficult point of forgiveness. And when you do, you can know that your heart is being formed more and more like the heart of Jesus. And let me just point you to one final place, one last test of your own heart's love. Verse 46 of the same chapter, Jesus' final prayer on the cross, as Luke tells us. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Do you want to know if you're loving like Jesus loved? Loving God first and loving others second and then loving yourself after that? Then check to see if your heart is able to pray, Father, I trust you even when my life is slipping away. For some of you, it will seem that it is slipping away as opportunities are lost, as relationships are broken. 
For others, it will be actually slipping away as illness begins to win. In those moments, you can know that your heart loves like Jesus if your heart is able to say, Father, I trust you, even if it means I die. What does God count? He counts love, love like Jesus loved. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge we don't know how to love like that. We just, we just confess to you that, that if you hadn't even shown us this, we would not even know that this kind of love would exist. We know that the instinct of our hearts is to love ourselves, not others, much less you. So what we're asking for as we look at your word is, is a, a miracle of transformation. Would you rework our hearts, rewire them, reform them? Would you place the heart of Jesus inside of us? And in so doing, would you remake us as a people such that we would be a people who love like Jesus loves. Do this, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit, for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ.